0: Everybody, it's Alicia here and in today's podcast I am talking to Murray Morrison. Now Murray is the founder of Tesamai, which is an online learning program um, and we're going to be talking about the science of learning and memory and how you can help your child or children um, when it comes to things like spellings and times tables and revision so uh welcome murray it's it's really lovely to have you on the podcast today thanks so much for having me it's a pleasure so um just briefly murray tell us a tiny bit about tasamai
1: oh yeah sure it's um it's a software program that i built originally as a way of helping my own students uh, with the various subjects i was working with so I, I taught a little bit of science and maths mostly and then I ended up doing a lot of tutoring. Uh, I found that, um, the tutoring side of things was, was tricky in that you'd spend a lot of time with the kid, but what I needed them to do was be doing some practice and really embedding their learning. Tasla is the software that I built really to help my students make the most of their learning and really embed memory. Uh, and it's, since then, it's become something that's used by uh, hundreds of thousands of students across the country um, as a way of really getting a solid foundation of knowledge for their common entrance, their GCSEs, uh, across a range of subjects.
0: Okay, amazing. And um, so I know that you talk about this idea of a pile of sand. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to memory and I thought well that's a really great place for us to start tell us tell us a little bit more
1: right well I might be misquoting this and it's not my um it's not my analogy but it's it's one that I heard somebody talking about and then the image stuck even if the exact wording hasn't so forgive me if I get this slightly wrong but it was a nice visualization of, as a way of describing essentially how memory works so if you imagine you're at the beach and you've uh, you've built great big mountain of, of quite dry sand on the beach. Um, that is sort of, that's representing your brain, this pile of sand. And then you take a bucket full of seawater, and that's going to represent a bit of knowledge. If you pour the water on top of the pile of sand, what you'll notice is a little bit of it soaks in, but an awful lot of it sort of runs off the side. Um, and so that's the kind of idea that, you know, the first time you learn something, not an awful lot of it sinks in, a lot of it kind of just sort of Runs off the side. Um, each time you fill a bucket with water and pour it over the top, what you'll notice about that pile of sand is that you start to see the water beginning to follow certain paths. The, the water will kind of carve out channels in the sand and start to run down those same pathways. This is the analogy here is that, that you know, the more times you expose yourself to a piece of knowledge or repeat a piece of learning, the more your brain develops neural pathways these channels through which knowledge and process can kind of flow this is really common sense isn't it we all know from everything we've ever learned and and watching our children learn and so on that through repetition through through repeating an exercise or a task or a piece of learning over and over something can become like muscle memory can become second nature and that is really an evidence of your brain developing neural pathways. Everything we try and do in education really is about trying to optimize that process to help your child develop really good neural pathways so that their learning can become increasingly effortless.
0: Okay, so where in that process, where where do you start?
1: Well, uh the fundamental thing, and then this is a you know a fundamental thing I guess in across all of cognitive science really, is the idea of feedback and repetition um and more practically i suppose uh, the idea of good practice everyone knows that expression about what does practice make but i think everyone knows it wrong a lot of people say practice makes perfect which is um dangerous as an as a as an idea practice makes permanent and what i mean by that is if you're practicing things well or practicing if you're practicing things badly then you're going to embed bad habits. If you're practicing well, you're going to hopefully get perfect something. So where am I going with this? I guess what I'm trying to say is the fundamental aspect of learning and where cognitive science can really um, teach us a lot about effective learning is in developing systems of feedback and repetition. So whether you're uh, whether you're three and learning to read your first words or seven and learning your times tables or 17 and learning your, your AS history. What you've got to be doing all the time is practicing that knowledge. We can talk about different kinds of practice, but getting immediate feedback of like, that was right. That was wrong. Or that was not, that was good. That was not so good. So that, that learner, that child has the opportunity. In the moment to know that what they did wasn't quite right, what they should do next time, and so that feedback can then inform the next time they practice um, so you know when I was working in schools and working with students the the method of supporting learning was the famous and hated homework you know write me an essay well do this exercise, do this comprehension tonight several hours after the lesson, which is already pretty rubbish. Um, and then hand it in the next day or three days later and then I'll mark it and then you'll get it back another three days later. So the feedback mechanism of traditional homework would take maybe a week and a week later. All you're told is you got six out of 10 in this comprehension. It's of no use at all to that student actually trying to learn. What I'm trying to do in my practice with my teaching and with my software is to make the feedback instantaneous and therefore many times more useful. So you, you try a thing, you get it wrong, you get the correction, you get a chance to try it again. And that whether or not you're using TaskMind or anything else, that's an approach as parents that we can all take to try and help our children learn, whether it's with them or instructing them about how to do their own learning.
0: I guess I'm thinking because I'm teaching myself Spanish at the moment on a very famous app, and it's exactly what they do. So sometimes you're speaking it. So I guess that idea of how we learn, you know, sometimes it's matching things. Sometimes it's it's uh, repeating things. Sometimes it's typing things. But immediately you get that. Yes, you got this right. No, you got that wrong. And then they test you again on it, you know, a couple of seconds later. So that's roughly what you're saying.
1: Well, absolutely. And in fact, you touched on not only the point I was making, but something else that I think is really vital. So. Yes, the feedback part, and there's a lot more to it in terms of the timing of feedback. So we can talk later about, um, interleaving and spacing as being the kind of the, the theories behind ideal feedback. But the other thing you mentioned, I think is so powerful and something that we can all, uh, use at home, uh, when you know, getting our own kids to do their, do their homework or their revision. Uh, and that is that, um, now I don't really know the terminology for this uh if you, do you remember that um i'm trying to remember the name of the film but where you've got the people in the in in your head all the different departments in your head you know, essentially the idea that in our heads we've got you know we've got all our senses we've got the vision people and the hearing people and the speaking people So all these different parts of your brain and what i try and get my students to do when they're revising is what i tell them not to do is look at your notes for an hour and then go and have a snack. Well, that's next to useless. Um, the best bit about that is the snack. Um, this, The reading of the notes is completely pointless or, or almost pointless because what have you done when you're reading your notes? You've only really engaged your visual part of your brain. And uh, let's say if, if we're being kind, there's sort of diminishing returns on that, staring at the page. And in reality, your mind's probably wandering. If, on the other hand, you read your notes aloud to yourself then what are you doing you're using your eyes you're using your mouth your tongue to express the words and you're using and your ears are then hearing those sounds so three different parts of your brain are engaged in learning and you can take that many steps further and like the ideal way to use your notes to learn is to look at your notes try and paraphrase them into something smaller read that aloud, ask yourself a question about it, and then try and answer the question, get someone else to test you. All that stuff that uses all the different parts of your brain, that accelerates the learning process by, you know, orders of magnitude. So what you're doing on your unnamed learning app, and other learning apps are available, I'm sure, I know, <laughs> is you, you're just engaging so many other parts of your brain, and then having that feedback process that means that knowledge gets sort of embedded over time.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because when I started, I thought, "Oh my goodness, you know, I'm never going to be able to remember." But it's really, really fascinating watching how just that endless repetition in the different formats makes such a difference. So, in terms of the kind of the science of moving memory from short-term memory to long-term memory, doing you know, we've talked about the different ways you might do it and I'm sure we can do more on that but in terms of a time schedule or a, or a number of repetitions that you have to do what where are we at with that
1: well I have a simple rule of thumb which is you know whatever works I guess um but I but really uh, one of my sort of um axioms I don't know if the right term uh was something that Sorry, I should just give as a background. Uh, I was never meant to be in education. My intended profession was music and I was a musician um, and I was a very keen athlete. And so a lot of what I put into my learning theory came from how musicians practice and how athletes train. Now, I had a coach who said to me once an amateur practices until they get it right and professional practices until they can't get it wrong. And that is a method of kind of when have I done enough? revision or learning is pretty good you know can you get it right okay fine now keep practicing it over time until you can't get it wrong um, because when you get to that point as a as a student as a child or as anyone you then have that magical thing of of confidence and not just any old confidence but actually justified confidence you know if you stop halfway through you might have the unjustified confidence where you go oh, i can do this So then you stop trying and then you go to the exam a month later and you turn out, it turns out you can't do it. So practicing until you can't get it wrong is the watchword. In terms of scheduling, I mentioned this idea of spacing of practice. And that's the simple idea that's based on a piece of of cognitive science by, by somebody called Ebbinghaus, which is the forgetting curve. That is, if you learn something on a Monday at noon, chances are you're very likely to have forgotten it by three o'clock on Monday. Um, so if you remind yourself a couple of hours after you first learned it, you push that knowledge back up to the, to, you know, to the top. Now, having done it twice, you're going to like, you're, you're likely to keep hold of that knowledge for a longer period of time. The decay curve will be shallower, essentially. So then the next time you want to practice, it might be Tuesday afternoon. The next time you want to practice, it might be Friday evening. And then maybe, three weeks later and then three months later so sort of increasing the spacing of repetition now if you've got um, 144 multiplication sums to learn uh, juggling all of that and managing the spacing of each one individually is obviously a challenge but if you say to yourself i'm going to practice my seven times tables this week uh, and then you practice them for three days running then next maybe leave it for a few days and practice it at the end of the week next week maybe shift your focus to the eight times table but at the end of the week go back to the seven times table see what I mean? so try and keep those things juggling so you've got a kind of one thing in focus and then you've got the backlog of things that you focused on previously but just get refreshed every week so they don't kind of fall into abeyance so that's the idea of spacing
0: anyway and you and is that interleaving as well
1: Interleaving is slightly different and it is also important. So I I think this is going to be particularly relevant to any listeners who have children who are preparing for, you know, big exams this year. So if you've got kids in year 11, for example, um, the interleaving idea is often mistaken for spacing. The two things work hand in hand. But interleaving is the idea that knowledge is stickier if it comes in a variety pack, basically. Um, Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. I was going to say, you know, you get you I've suddenly thought of a variety pack of Kellogg's cereals and if you (laughs) if you only eat Cocoa Pops it's not enormously healthy if you have Cocoa Pops one in every eight boxes of cereal then that's a nice treat it's kind of a bit more special it's a little bit like that for learning so if you if you you know you've got eight GCSEs to revise for um uh, if you just did history all day and then the next day you just did physics all day well you'd want to throw yourself out of a window at some point, probably just doing all that one thing. But um, it, it's, it, the problem is also that, that it's diminishing returns again. It becomes less memorable. If you alternate topics and you sort of do, uh, I'm a big fan of Pomodoro time as an idea, 25 minutes of work, five minutes off, um, change the subject every session. Even if you feel like you didn't get to a satisfactory conclusion, that's almost a good thing. You know, that kind of unresolved, oh, I need to come back to that. It's going to, again, make it kind of stickier in your mind. Do the history for a session, then do physics for a session, then do English, then go back to history. And if you're scheduling a revision session and getting serious about it, like you might be in year 11, to actually map it out and say, I need more history. So it's going to be slightly more frequent in the pattern. But the mixing it up of the whole thing becomes enormously valuable. Um, If you're interested in the research, by the way, if you if you Google um an educational uh, theorist called John Dunlowski, he did a meta study of lots of other pieces of education research and kind of essentially came out with the top 10 of things that have been shown to work. Uh, Interleaving of practice, space repetition, and the first thing I said was kind of uh, quizzing yourself with feedback, came out top three of the of the 10 best things you can do for your practice so uh these three things are really you know crucial crucial for successful practice and learning
0: well maybe we could put that as a link um on the website so people can go and have a look at that as well because i'm now fascinated what the other seven are but we probably haven't got time to go <laughs> no. well i'm
1: going to embarrass myself because i'm going to run out of steam and forget what they are further down the list uh it, it, it's also useful because it says very specifically the things not to do you know the kind of things we see uh, our kids doing all the time i'm sure of, like printing out your notes and highlighting them with nice colored markers waste of ink um, waste of time there are ideas around highlighting your notes that are useful uh, if we've got time i can kind of give you a short version of that yeah. for me this is a key revision strategy so we're really getting into the kind of gcse a-level side of things get your syllabus your actual um specification of your exam printed out the list of things that says the student needs to know this 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 and then you get your highlighters and use them to mark it like traffic lights this is a red topic that i don't know this is an orange topic that i kind of know is a green topic that i i can get right and then have an extra color like blue but this is a topic i can't get wrong if you've used your highlighters to strategize about your syllabus then you can immediately see, all right, these are the red topics I need to do more frequently and the blue ones less frequently and so on. So that's a good way of highlighting the notes. But just um, just colouring in your school book is sort of a waste of time. And Dunlowski is very adamant about that.
0: OK, the other thing that I remember mine doing and being told to do was like um, having a an index card. So for each topic, you've got to go through and learn it and then write the key points. What do you think of that as a an idea?
1: Well, absolutely. Sort of flashcards and self-quizzing is is number one on the list. And if we're really getting into kind of exam revision, that is a fantastic way of doing it. But I go back to where I started, which is that these things are only really useful if you have immediate feedback, correction and repetition. Um, Not to just sort of plug my own software, but this is the whole point is that actually doing this under your own steam is incredibly hard, takes a lot of skill, takes a lot of extra effort. In reality, people aren't going to do it that assiduously um, or they're going to spend a lot of time. They should have been revising, figuring out their system. I built TASMI to essentially do exactly this um, and to do all the planning and organisation for every child based on their own profile. So if you're using TASMI, that is essentially a system of flashcards that's tailored to your exams, that knows you, knows what you know, knows what you don't know and gives you more regular you know, tighter spacing on the stuff you need to practice and longer spacing on the stuff you're mastering. So this is essentially my system with built on all of these ideas, a research of what works, what works for musicians, what works for athletes, what works for elite learners and elite performers. Let's codify that into a fun software game and get you going with it. So
0: because yeah, i think one of the other i mean i wish i'd known all of this because i might have actually got some exams but um i think the the other thing that we often do isn't it is we we go back to the stuff that we already feel confident about because it makes us feel more confident so i guess there's something about our mindset as well in all of this because if we've got that kind of fixed mindset where we just don't think we can do it and we can't and nothing's going to change, we're going to keep going back to the stuff that we feel confident with rather than tackling those kind of, I think, as you said, the red topics.
1: Well, 100%. And and you mentioned something about your language learning app and, and your feeling of fear initially moving towards confidence. And I was going to pick up on that. And thank you for bringing it up again, because it's so important. Your mindset is vital. And, you know, I can see this from a sports side of things as well. Uh, the people who have a positive mindset often end up, well, nearly always end up winning far more regularly than the people who have talent and don't have the, the, the mindset. You know, the kind of the, the confidence and the, the willingness to kind of tackle your weaker areas and work on them and that growth mindset idea of looking for incremental gains is the thing that really marks someone out as you're going to go far. And it's not an intrinsic thing. It's something that can be learned, um, something that can be developed over time. Part of this whole philosophy of good learning practice is about developing those kind of intrinsic motivation ideas that come from regular little and often practice with feedback that's that that can turn anyone from a oh, I can't do this or I don't want to do this into. OK, I'm getting the hang of it and I feel like this is productive and ultimately into somebody who's like, OK, I'm I'm, I'm owning this now. Um, it was one of my problems, actually, with the tutoring game versus good ed- education, technology or good learning practice at home. It was I felt a great danger of just relying on tutoring was that the the student can risk becoming something of a passenger in the process. And maybe they've gone from getting four out of 10 to getting eight out of 10. But somewhere in the back of their mind, they're sort of going, well, did I do that? Or did the tutor do that? And the great thing about blending in some self-quizzing practice, feedback spacing kind of work, whether it's through Tasma or through writing your own flashcards, is when you see that improvement happening, you know, I did that. And that's the kind of thing that feeds back into this kind of motivation piece, which is so vital, not only for getting that result in the next exam, but also in terms of um, persuading a young person that they can learn, they can develop, they can improve and they can go far in life. And so that motivation piece is probably the most important of all.
0: Um, um, This is going to sound bonkers, but I remember trying to teach one of mine how to do the times table and we had the the kind of you know two times two in one room in a sticky label and then the the answer in another room and it was that kind of you know it was getting them moving as well but also once they were able to put it all in order that that feeling of of having conquered something so for for I guess little ones you know it's with the older ones they can understand why they've got to do it even if the actual getting motivated is hard but instilling that growth mindset into really little ones so when you're first doing your first two times table your first spelling test for school what are your hot tips for that for parents
1: well it's 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 all very similar but obviously it has to be tonally much more gentle than playful for. for what it's worth the tables thing um i've always felt well it's okay a couple of things first of all I would always avoid doing something like this where I say to my son, right, what's six times seven? And then he says 42, or he doesn't. And, uh, he does actually. He's very good. Um, but those two pieces of information are separate. Um, it sounds like draconian, but really you should encourage your child to say the full sentence, six sevens are 42. The other thing to avoid there is you say, what's six times seven? And they go, 7, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. and they're counting up the times table. Well, why did I pick sevens? So the idea of getting to your answer by doing this, the worst is five. So what's nine times five? They go five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty, thirty-five, forty, forty-five. They're counting on their fingers and they say forty-five, but they've completely lost the context, which is the fact you need them to know is five nines are forty-five. So that counting up bit isn't great. Uh, f- great is a bit of scaffolding, is a leg up. But at the end, get them to say nine fives are 45 and then the other way around five nines are 45 and then get them to say it again an hour later and a day later and a week later and again back to that idea so that what's embedded is the whole sentence. And ask why lots of our questions are written in a kind of complete the sentence form or fill in the blanks form because really what we're trying to do is brainwash you with the entire fact rather than ask you a question and get you to say the answer. So the same can go for spellings, I think. And again, this idea of speaking it aloud, looking at it and then turning it over and then writing it down, Um, having you spell it to your child and have them write it down so that they're using their ears, their eyes, their tongue, their hands, all the different sort of cognitive centers of the brain to process that bit of information so that somewhere along the line it's going to grip on somewhere. Um, So lots of games like that. The other thing I was going to say briefly about timetables is uh, very few people really understand what numbers are and can see them. You know, the number nine is a squiggly symbol that represents a quantity. It's quite a weird thing when you start thinking about it. But if you start to think about nine as a shape and Think about a grid of three by three boxes like a little segment of sudoku grid or something you know if that's what nine looks like to you then of course implicitly you understand that it's three times three um think about you know you get half a dozen eggs before you throw the box away keep that bottom half of the egg box or write with a sharpie on your eggs one two three four five six so that your child can see that two rows of three is six or three columns of two is six trying to visualize numbers as arrays uh to use a sort of spreadsheet term the idea that numbers can be shapes uh and so on you can do loads with this i could go on for hours about what you can do to manipulate those shapes to see how multiplication and division works but it's it becomes exciting it becomes accessible and then suddenly times tables aren't a thing to be feared because ultimately at the end of the day you have to learn your times tables at least up to 10 off by heart otherwise you've got no foundation for anything else so anything you can do to get that embedded is going to be it's going to pay dividends
0: i just realized that i see numbers as dice you know like the faces of the dice and i guess that yes. probably comes from playing an awful lot of board games when we were little
1: yes i, I i'm the same and, and actually when we had to do homeschooling uh the first thing i did you know in lockdown was went on amazon and bought uh, sort of 60 dice I think it was uh, a box where you got five of a kind in each color so I had you know 12 different colors of five sets of dice and the great thing about that is you can use them as blocks and visualize all these different multiplications four by seven just get oh count them up 28 dice but you can go one step further which is to use the dots on them as well so you can sort of have uh, five sixes and then count the dots, to see it. Like. so you do loads of things with dice. they're an amazing tool for learning arithmetic actually, and you can have a lot of fun with it and later, you can use them for probability, you can use them for radioactive decay and physics. Dice are amazing. I love. Them.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe i was yeah. not educated after all <laughs> so um i I guess um routine has to come into this, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely, and and if if routine can be built in with these ideas again of uh, feedback and of around motivation. So we I mentioned sort of extrinsic motivation, but generally you've got to start with no, I've mentioned intrinsic motivation, but generally you've got to start with extrinsic. So you as a parent need to like apply some motivation <laughs> somewhere along the lines, which is hopefully much more about rewarding the right kind of outcomes than like punishing the bad ones. But you know a little bit of Gentle negative feedback too, like no, it wasn't quite right, that wasn't so good. Um, it, 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 build that into routine, I think, is really powerful. So, um, yeah, you know, I talk to a lot of parents who are subscribers to TaskMy and I sort of say, how can I motivate my child to use it, and use it right? Um, my general thing is, like, okay, find the time of day that's going to work best. Like usually, sort of breakfast time. Get them to do their daily goal before breakfast, and then if they've done if they've done it and they've done it well, you know, they've passed an accuracy bar or something, then they can have their favorite breakfast and they can have, you know, crunching nut cornflakes or whatever. And if, on the other hand, they haven't done it or they've done it lazily and not put in the effort, then they're, you know, they'll have to have Weetabix or something equally hideous. So, you know, the kind of ideas of building a little routine and building some feedback into that, I think, is really powerful. Obviously, you want to avoid the idea that, learning is associated with punishment and reward alone i mean you know a thousand times more about this than i do i mean you're probably you're probably gritting your teeth thinking i'm giving terrible no,
0: I but
1: you know building routine is so powerful there's a there's a very good book called atomic habits it's all about kind of building routines from from you know small little practices that get embedded um you know, it's no different really from what I was saying about, you know, learning and facts uh, and just exposure to them. Um, yeah. And so routine can be massively powerful and, uh, and really worth trying to build into, build into things. If you've got older children as well, it's worth looking, uh, at, um, I'm a big fan of this idea called smart goals. It comes from sports psychology, but it's equally applicable to, to learning and, and other things. You know, talking with your teenager about what, what are we going to try and achieve? In the next month with regard to your learning or your revision or anything else, let's agree on a sort of discrete set of goals that is SMART, by which it means specific and measurable and achievable and all that stuff and time-based. So you know, look look up SMART goals if you if you haven't heard of it before, and then use that as a kind of a template for building a routine where your child can then have much more responsibility over it. And you can be there to kind of give the feedback with them have a review at the end of the month and go well, how do we do against those goals let's talk about the next set of goals it sounds awfully managerial it'll feel quite alien at first but i've seen this kind of thing really play out superbly well and take a lot of pressure off the parent-child relationship where you, you don't have to do quite so much nagging in the end uh, and they they feel again like the achievements they've achieved are their own and they can take that forward to the next level
0: Um, they're super helpful so we'll put i've actually got a smart goals um thing so i'll put that into that as well so you can google those if you want them um so mommy before we finish is there anything else that you would like um our audience to know about learning and memory and the science of it
1: well i mean i think i've kind of covered the salient points and probably bored everyone to tears but um uh -hmm. if i kind of i have one You know, really kind of standby analogy that's really helped me through the years and you can steal this and use this for your own children if they're feeling a little demotivated. Um, it, it, it would be this that, um, well, my son's, uh, nine now, nearly 10. Um, and well, actually, I was going to change my mind about what I was going to say. Um, I, I, well, so I'm going to do two things now. The first thing is, you know, if, 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 if a child is feeling really low in confidence and sort of feels like something is insurmountable. I always talk to them about how when they were however old, three years old, you know, how difficult it was for them initially to learn to tie their shoelaces. You know, and that was a thing you had to learn. You had to have a little mnemonic and you had to be reminded and, and be taught. And it took a while to get the hang of it. But the great thing about that was um, you did it every day, at least twice a day. Uh, if you got it wrong your shoe fell off that's feedback right there uh, and if you got it right your shoe stayed on and after a while you tie your shoelaces every day pretty soon you can do it with your eyes closed you do it in the dark standing on one leg and it's just this idea that something that seems initially impossible can become so second nature that you never think about it again until you have your own kids and you have to go oh my god how do i explain how to tie a shoelace and if it articulates into words and it's quite Quite difficult, isn't it? That was one thing, and the other thing I was uh, just remembered as a really nice idea that I use to persuade people to kind of do the practice is to say, right, a bit like the sand thing. Everything you're taught in school, I want you to think of it as a lump of clay. You're know, given this lump of clay; it's kind of brick-shaped, and you're putting it on the ground. And everything you're taught, this next lump of clay is going to go on top, and you're going to build this wall out of lumps of clay. If you You know, the danger is the wall's only going to get a certain height before it starts to collapse under its own weight. If, on the other hand, each piece of knowledge you're given, that lump of clay, you put it in the oven and you fire it, turn it into a hard brick, then you can build your tower a hundred times taller and it'll be stable. So the knowledge is the lump of clay. The oven is practice. That's where you're firing that lump of clay and hardening it until it's solid. And then the wall is, you know, how high you'll climb. So this idea of taking each piece of knowledge and really practising it when you get it. Don't put it in the wall and then try and fire the wall because it's going to be really, really hard. But practise each thing as you learn it, make sure you really embed it so you build a solid foundation and then you can go awfully high. So that's that's my two kind of ideas to leave you with.
0: Oh, I completely love that. And I suppose when you're I wonder one last question for you in your um in your software do you use this idea of streaks because I'm now on my 29 day streak and feeling like I really don't want to miss my practice tonight because I don't want to lose my streak and and it is clever do you, do I, you...
1: I I we do and um we're, we're a little bit more gentle with them particularly because taskmally is a kind of a homework and so a lot of it in some schools so a lot of it's kind of we can't be too pun. If, if the school says you've got to do it four times a week, we can't then punish people for not doing it seven times a week. But we do something like it. I was just thinking about what's my streak on Wordle at the moment. It's sort of, i <laughs> 150. 150 days ago, I just forgot to do it, and I remember that like one minute past midnight was the worst thing. Um, so yes, we do slightly. What we do in our program is we. All this stuff around organising your learning and revision is awfully hard, and the people least qualified to do it are teenagers, right? Um, at least none of the teenagers I know are brilliantly organised. So taskmy tries to profile you in terms of your strengths and weaknesses and build a personal learning program. Put what you need today in your in your bucket. But when you open the app as a student, what you see is really, really, very simple. It's just a wheel that says you need to score 75 points today, and score those 75 points by answering more questions right and wrong. What we do in terms of streaks is if you build, if you fill in your wheel today, then tomorrow's goal will discount slightly and it'll come down. And if you don't do it today, it'll climb up. Uh, the idea being that I would far rather you did um, 10 minutes a day every day than one hour once a week. Again, these same ideas about spacing and interleaving are infinitely more powerful if they're done little and often and regularly compared to if they are done a sort of big monolithic tasks. Because once you start working longer and longer on one thing, you get this idea of diminishing returns and you get all that gap in which you're going to forget everything you just learned. So the, the app encourages that daily use through this kind of discounting and raking of the, of the goal and the target. Uh, with lots of other things, too. I mean, we've had to be pretty draconian. Like, you know, if you get something wrong that we think you should get right, we make you wait five seconds and things. When we did that, the number of complaints we got from kids was amazing. It was like, that oh, is exactly what I want. I want you complaining because I want you to care about getting the answer right. So we do all this kind of gamification stuff to make the app try and gently encourage you to do it right. And, and you know, the results kind of speak for themselves. It has a great effect.
0: Yeah. And I guess there's that for us listening, it's that really interesting, isn't it? The link between how much of learning and gamification, the crossover is huge. So why do our kids get really hooked on it? It's really not surprising. And it's not that surprising that actually, um, my little Spanish app is, it has got me, you know, quite just hooked. It's just great. I
1: love it. It is it's a, it's a kind of an interesting area though I, I, when uh, when i first started taskmy someone who was like writing the code for me said oh you need to like gamify it and make it fun and i really resisted it was very important to me that taskmy was effective before it was fun um and then we sort of tried to gradually introduce gamification in there but you, you should people should be aware or cautious when looking out there for learning programs and, and applications if it's like really, really fun and kids love it, it's maybe a little too good to be true. You know, I've always compared Tasamai to sort of educational broccoli. You know, it's kind of it's delicious if you do it right. Um but it's also healthy. And if if there's an app out there that your kids absolutely love, you may be wondering is it sort of educational candy floss and it's all sugar and no nutrition. Um so the balance between the gamification and the valuable content is, is quite important.
0: Amazing. Marie. I so appreciate you sharing all your knowledge with us and I think it's such a useful podcast. I can't wait for everybody to hear it and to be able to use some of the techniques. And we'll put in the, the links to Jonathan Dalowski, is that right?
1: Dolosky, um, I'll, I'll send you a link to a nice article, yeah.
0: Fantastic. And I will. you can also go to the SMART goals in there. Um, but thank you so, so much for joining us today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Lovely to see you again
0: absolutely see you soon and um, i look forward to seeing everybody else on the next podcast